Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this lunchtime event hosted by the University of Bath Institute for Policy Research. My name is Nick Pierce, and I'm a professor of public policy uh, and director of the IPR at the University of Bath. And today I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Jonathan Haskell and Stan Westlake, who are going to be with us today to discuss their latest book, Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. And this event is part of a, a wider series we're running this year at the IPR on um, what uh, has been termed the global polycrisis, a, a term that's contested, but in, increasingly in use, trying to explore the kind of multiple and overlapping and interconnected crises of our time and how we can best navigate them. And in addressing the issue of the intangible economy today, uh, we are going to be addressing some of the kind of bigger questions uh, for some of our institutions, uh, how we govern our economy, what makes up the dynamics of, uh, of a contemporary uh, advanced economies like ours and how we can best think about those in the in the wider context of the challenges that we face. And it's a, it's a delight to be able to welcome uh, Jonathan and Stan. Jonathan Haskell, of course, Professor of Economics at Imperial College uh, Business School and an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee and Stan Westlake, Chief Executive at the Royal Statistical Society and shortly to become the next Executive Chair of the Economic and Social uh, Research Council. And Jonathan and Stan are both um, pioneering thinkers on the idea of the intangible economy. I won't say much more about that concept because I know they're going to, but uh, thinking about the economy in ways that don't simply relate to our physical assets, but ideas, knowledge and other forms of, of activity in the, in the economy. And it's something they've written about uh, before, uh, in, in previous works, but this is about their, their latest book, and it gives us an opportunity to hear about their latest thinking and some of the policy questions that flow from uh, their analysis. So there'll be plenty of opportunity uh, after they've given their talk to ask questions. Um, if you do so in the uh, Q&A, uh, I'll be able to then look at those questions and um, uh, aggregate them, put them together, and then put them to Jonathan and Stan in that uh, part of the sessions. Please note that your cameras and microphones uh, as an audience are switched off. Um, so you do have to use the Q&A function to, um, to put your questions. The session is being recorded and it will be made available online as a podcast and a video, which you'll be able to find in due course on the IPR website. So if you want to return to anything, you can do so then. So thanks for joining us today uh, and, uh, uh, and this event. And I'll now hand over to Jonathan and Stan for their presentation. Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Nick, uh, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Stian is just kindly going to put up the slides, um, which should be up now. Uh, I'm going to start off uh, telling you a little bit of background behind the intangible economy, why it's important, uh, why we think it matters, uh, and then I'll pass over to Stian, uh, who's going to talk about some of the policy issues. Um, so our, our new book is on the right, uh, called Restarting the Future, uh, and Nick, as you kindly uh, mentioned, uh, it's a, it builds on the earlier book uh, called uh, Capitalism Without Capital, uh, which is on there as well. So let me try to advance the slides and see if this works. Uh, oh, I need to press... I need to press that button there. Right, sorry, there we go. Um, so that our, core, um, our, our core proposition uh, in this line of work is that business has changed. How has it changed? Well, factories used to look like this, uh, but now a factory looks rather like that. Uh, in case you're wondering what that factory is on the right-hand side, those are the original pioneer finders of Microsoft. So Bill Gates is on the bottom left there. 
Uh, and what we're about is we're trying to understand an economy uh, which has changed from the types uh, of assets on the left-hand side uh, to the types of activities on the right-hand side. Let me illustrate that uh, in the following way. Here's the PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, league table of leading businesses. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, if you're not uh, familiar, are a leading accountancy firm. And they look at the market capitalization. It's just one measure, uh, but it's one pretty good measure of what the leading businesses are. Let's run through who some of them are. This is data in 2021, uh, and these will be familiar names to you. So Apple is first, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, or Google, Facebook. Uh, I'm gonna guess basically everybody on the call uh, is either familiar with these businesses and probably uses the products of these businesses a lot. The second company is Saudi Aramco, uh, who are the Saudi Arabian uh, oil company. Um, let, let's spend a minute then thinking about what kind of companies these are. And we can illustrate this very clearly. Here are Saudi Aramco's assets. As I say, they're the Saudi Arabian oil company. You can see what their assets are. They are the, uh, you know, the, uh, the ship down at the bottom there, uh, the pipes, the buildings, uh, all the bits of machinery and the heavy technology that's required uh, to get oil out of the ground and ship it to you and me. Uh, here are Microsoft's assets. Well, they look rather different. This is actually uh, the, pro the first few lines of code from Word 1. This is actually the dictionary which you use when you, you know, call up the dictionary uh, to inspect your Word document. And, and the core of our argument is that the reason that these businesses look very different is their assets have moved from the type of assets at the top which we're gonna call tangible assets to the type of assets at the bottom, the right-hand side, Microsoft assets, which are the intangible assets. And indeed, if you look over to the left and look at the table, companies like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Google, Facebook, their assets are almost entirely intangible assets. Let me spend a minute saying a little bit more about what we mean by intangible assets. Um, and I'm gonna do so uh, just, just before I do that, here's a scheme of what we're gonna talk about the rise of the intangible economy, why intangible capital is different, uh, and then, as I say, I'll pass over to Stian for reforming our institutions. So let's start with the rise of the intangible economy. We're going to start with Saudi Aramco's assets, the, the quintessential tangible uh, uh, um, uh, company, uh, and their investments and their assets are the types of things you see on the left-hand side, buildings, computers, plant machinery, uh, and vehicles. And those are the types of things which accountants have been uh, trying to capture uh, uh, trying to uh, measure, uh, be it in company accounts or be it in national accounts, which puts together the GDP numbers. Those are the kind of measures which those accounts have been measuring more or less since the 1920s. Um, they measure investments made by a producer, they're costly to undertake, and they provide a benefit over time. Here on the right-hand side are the intangible investments, which we think uh, are, are, what, are what the economy uh, has transmogrified to. And then things you can't feel and you can't touch. R&D, let's run through some of them. R&D is an obvious example, incredibly important during the pandemic. Uh, that's the thing which got us uh, uh, um, the, uh, the, the vaccines. Uh, but of course, we had to have training. Uh, companies had to train their workers uh, on how to do it and how to produce it. Uh, design, organizational development, moving more broadly, branding and marketing. There's artistic originals. So if you've ever wondered where Harry Potter is in the national accounts, they're under artistic originals. This is books and movies and dance and so forth, which people are producing. And right down to the bottom there, uh, possibly a much more uh, uh, sort of visual element, which we're all familiar with, is software and databases. So all of those assets on the right are the assets in the new economy uh, over and above 
uh, the assets on the left there. Um, now, a couple of things on this. Let me try to get the animation of these slides going. The first on the left here is that GDP still doesn't include most intangibles. When we count up the investments that companies are making uh, to do the national accounts, do GDP, we count up the tangible investments on the top left. We count up some of the intangible investments, software, artistic originals and R&D, those are in the middle. But we still don't count, because it's rather difficult, um, uh, the uh, intangible investments in branding and marketing and organizational uh, uh, development. Um, if that's the case for national accounts and GDP, it is doubly the case for company accounts. So on the right is some work by a very interesting consultancy called Ocean, Ocean Tomo, uh, who go to the company accounts of American companies, or all, all companies, this in particular happens to be those in the Standard & Poor Index, and works out by cohort of company what the relative importance is uh, in their valuation of tangible assets and intangible assets. And you can see in the 1970s on the left-hand side there, intangible assets were around 17% of company value. Uh, but by the time we got to 2020, they're you know, way, way above that, above 80% of company value. So the bulk of valuation of the uh, S&P 500 is now around intangible assets. Um, uh, let's just see a little example of intangible assets. Uh, and you might be thinking, especially having seen that list before, that they're all about technology. We're just, you know, banging on about what everybody knows about, namely new technology. And we want to argue strongly that they're not about new technology. And this is part of the reason the Steen will discuss uh, why they're important for the institutions and not just one corner of the economy. Here is the gym business, not a tech, not known as a tech company, um, but let's see uh, if we can apply our ideas to the gym. And on the left-hand side there uh, is a scene from 1977. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger's breakthrough movie. There he is on the right there of, of the picture. Uh, and you can see that in the gym business in 1977, there were lots of tangible assets. You can see the building uh, and you can see the equipment uh, that, the, uh, uh, that, 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 that they are using. Let's pass over to gyms in 2023. There are still the, those uh, tangible assets, there's still the building and there's still the equipment, but remarkably, there's a lot more intangible assets in this business in particular. So for example, uh, there's incredible amounts of software, uh, which goes to producing uh, the screens. Uh, and then as you do your exercises, for example, if you're doing body pump or something like that, uh, then you can see the screens. There's a lot of training and a lot of processes uh, which are behind the people who are going to teach you how to do the exercise. And branding and marketing is very important as well for not only the gym owners, but the type of exercises which they offer. And Les Mills, uh, which does uh, the body pump uh, high intensity uh, exercise, uh, is a kind of well-known uh, example of that. Um, they have literally no tangible assets whatsoever. They don't own any buildings. They don't own any equipment. But what they own is they own the software and they own the rights to the music, uh, which comes with the uh, videos, uh, which uh, help you do the exercises uh, along with the videos and the music and so on. Uh, and, and they've got a whole set of training processes as well to train the instructors uh, to help you get along. So it's not a tech story uh, by any means. And I hope that example kind of brings it to life a little bit. Um, the rise of the intangible economy can be seen in this diagram here. This is the fraction of value added accounted for by intangible investment. And the bottom line is that's been rising very strongly. That's the red line. This is in the US from the mid 1970s uh, to pre-pandemic, uh, whereas the tangible investment ratio is on flat 
or falling. So ca intangible capital is the capital we need to consider in the 21st century. Let me pass on quickly to the second part of this, which is to ask the question why intangible capital is different. Because you might reasonably say that the nature of investment just changes all the time in different economies. So why should this be any different? Uh, and we think that intangible capital has got some interesting economic properties. It makes it different and therefore makes the analysis of our political institutions, which, uh, uh, which, which Nick, you kindly mentioned at the very beginning, uh, uh, which the Bath Institute is so um, uh, focused on. We think it makes that analysis of those institutions uh, a rather different one. Um, now, there are four economic properties of intangibles. Uh, I'll go through each one quickly and then uh, go through each one a little bit more leisurely. Uh, the first is intangibles are scalable. The second is they are sunk. The third is they have spillovers. And the fourth is they have synergy. So they all begin with S. Uh, and let's go through them one by one. Um, here's about, let's start with scalability. So here's a tangible business on the left-hand side, namely the taxi cab business. If you carry a couple of people in your taxi cab and you want to carry a couple more people, you've got to buy a new taxi cab. So in that sense, taxi cabs are not scalable when you scale up the business. So there's a traditional taxi cab business on the left hand side. Here's a new taxi cab business on the right hand side. And it is, of course, the Uber algorithm. And the remarkable thing about the Uber algorithm is that if you've got two people using it or two million people using it, it's still the same algorithm. So the first point about intangible capital, the intangible capital, of course, being the software behind the algorithm on the right, the tangible capital being the taxi cab on the left. The first point about intangible capital uh, is that you can scale it up. Second uh, feature of intangible capital is that it's sunk. Let's talk about Nokia for a second. They were the leading mobile phone uh, company uh, uh, years ago before Apple came along. Uh, when they went bankrupt, it turned out that they only had two assets. They had some tangible assets, which are on the left-hand side. You recognize those from Saudi Aramco. Those are the rather handsome set of buildings uh, that they have in Finland, which you can still go to. They managed to sell them off. They also had some intangible assets, and the intangible assets was the software operating system called Symbian, which then became Windows Mobile. And it turned out that when the company uh, failed and it just failed to take off, they just couldn't get any of those values back. So what economists call this is they call these sunk costs. The intangible costs on the right were sunk. They could not be recovered. The tangible costs on the left were not sunk, and they could be recovered. So that's the second of the S's. The third of the S's is spillovers. Here's another tangible business on the left-hand side. If you want to uh, use some of the properties and processes of this tangible business, you cannot. There's a fence in front of it. Uh, there's no sense in which if they are, if the owners are using it, you cannot use it. Here's some, an intangible feature of the business. This is the Apple iPhone. Uh, uh, here's a picture of the first one in 2007. Um, if you uh, hop onto the internet or cast your memories back, uh, if you can remember that far back, um, before the Apple iPhone came along, all phones looked a bit weird. They had funny fold-out things and odd aerials and speakers which stuck out and, you know, weird, weird, weird you know, aerials on the top and behind them and so forth. Basically, within about 18 months of the iPhone coming out, all smartphones basically looked exactly the same. So the design of the iPhone was something that other people could use uh, relatively uh, easily. And so that's what economists call a spillover. 
a feature of the intangible knowledge element uh, and, and to be uh, 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 in contradiction to the tangible element on the left-hand side. I'll finish with a final property, which is synergies. Uh, as it says on the slide there, uh, intangible assets very valuable when combined with other assets. We, we talk in our first book about the example of the EpiPen, a uh, wonderful, uh, uh, um, if you're not familiar with this, this is a wonderful uh, injection mechanism uh, for people who have anaphylactic shock, save millions of lives, uh, an extremely profitable company uh, uh, for, the, um, for the inventors. And you might say, well, that's an intangible asset, knowing the chemical of the, uh, the chemical structure uh, of this wonderful drug. Surely that's protected by patents. So wouldn't the secret uh, of that intangible business be the patent? Well, the patent ran out more or less 100 years ago, so it can't be the patent. We think it is the synergies between the different types of intangible assets uh, which are responsible uh, for this company doing so well. What are the synergies? Uh, they are the wonderful design of the EpiPen. They are the brand of the EpiPen. Everybody's heard of it. Uh, they've got a very sophisticated marketing and distribution network, uh, and they do lots of training for you to use the uh, EpiPen. So putting all those things together means that when it comes to intangibles, these synergies, these combinations of intangibles are extraordinarily valuable. Um, okay, apologies for going through that uh, rather quickly, um, but uh, uh, let me, uh, before passing over to Stian, uh, just give you a sense of how those properties then show up in the economy. On the left-hand side here, we document the rises in concentration that there have been. So if you're not familiar with the concentration term, this is a term that economists use to ask the question, I take a market, what's the fraction of the market, which the top five firms, the top eight firms, depending upon top 10 firms, whatever your favorite ratio is, what's the fraction of the market that, that those firms account for? And that concentration ratio has been going up since for about the last sort of 20 odd years. Uh, and people have worried a lot uh, about competition policy. Uh, as a consequence. Here, what we've done is we split the rise in the concentration ratio across European countries to the rise in the intangible intensive sectors versus the low intangible sectors. And what you can see is that concentration has gone up much more in the intangible intensive sectors, and it's flatter in the low intangible uh, intensive sectors. And that, of course, is entirely in line with the kind of properties we've just seen, most notably scale. If I can scale up as an intangible uh, company, then it's very likely that I'm going to be able to serve, or rather few companies are going to be able to serve a large part of the market. So we think this rise in concentration is a manifestation of the shift to the intangible economy uh, and uh, an example of one of the S's we just talked about. Here on the right is another example of one of the other S's, spillovers and synergies. The spillovers come from being adjacent to other smart people, smart people adjacent to other smart people. That normally takes place in cities. Uh, and so here is a graph of the productivity advantage of cities uh, in uh, the US. OK, let me pass over to Stian to talk about changing institutions. Thank you, Jonathan. And I'm going to talk about three, three layers of this institutions question. This is very much kind of the core of where we took the book Restarting the Future. I'm going to talk a little bit about our theoretical perspective on this. Then I'm going to talk about some key ideas that spring from the idea of intangibles to institutions. And then hopefully I'll squeeze in some time to talk about some practical implications for the UK and for other countries. So to start with the sort of theoretical question about institutions, um, there is, to our view, something of a 
debate or a disagreement in different ways that different people look at institutions. And I would describe that as a difference between those who think that economically important institutions are sort of eternal, that, that, that a good institution is a good institution, and that is not really a historically dependent term, and people who believe that these things are very contingent on the technologies that arise at a particular time. So if you look at something like um, Asimov and Robinson's work on the narrow corridor, I would characterize that as quite a sort of eternal view of institutions. Eternal institutions are things like property rights, markets, trust. And really, if you've got those, it doesn't matter if you're 1500 AD or 2023, you can build everything else from those. And if you don't have them, then everything falls to pieces economically. But they're not hugely contingent on what else is going on. There's, of course, another tradition of looking at institutions, which is really technologically and historically contingent. And I think there are people like, you would argue, Carlotta Perez knew this in 1970 and would say that actually the institutions you need rely very much on where you are in the evolution of your technologies. And I suppose what we argue in the book, and we go into it in a fair amount of theoretical detail in chapter four, is that we believe that there is an important sense in which institutions are dependent on your capital technologies. So the things that Jonathan talked about earlier, the fact that we're in an economy now that has more spillovers, we're in an economy now where synergies are more important, where sunkiness is important. We argue that this changes the work that your institutions have to do, whether that's the institution, your financial institutions, because your, your, your capital is at some cost, whether it's your property rights, because spillovers exist. So we are more on the Perez side than on the Robinson and Asimov side. And, um, it's interesting. For some people, that is an entirely trivial and obvious information, but a, a piece of information. For others, it's totally heretical. So it'd be interesting to see in the discussion where, 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 where you feel. But having made that observation, let's talk about some, some key places that might take you, some key differences that you get if you start thinking about the institutions for an intangible economy. Um, here's a, here's a, a nice uh, c fresco of a place with some good and effective institutions. But I'm going to talk about three little concepts here, wheelie suitcases and rocket ships. It's a question of constraining your discretion, untying a DCS from the mask, and what you do from an institutional point of view about the losers, people who lose out. Um, let's first of all talk about two manifestations of intangible capital that sort of change the world in their own way. On the left-hand side here, space flight, the Apollo program. And on the right-hand side, something also related to flight, but kind of rather more quotidian, the, we the wheelie suitcase. Now, these are very different in their different ways, and they represent two different ways that intangibles might play out. So if we look at the example, the example on the right, the Apollo program, this is an example, this is a, a set of intangible investments where spillovers really matter. If you'd gone to the US, the US corporate sector in the 1960s and said, well, when are you going to invent spaceflight? Suppose though, absent any government intervention, one would assume it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, you know, the spill of the invention of these technologies had huge spillovers. It required a lot of R&D. There was a clear mission oriented dimension. And what you needed to make this happen was a vast investment of taxpayers money, subsidies to get businesses to develop all these technologies through government procurement and government funding. Um, and that made it happen. It was the spillover aspect of intangibles that meant that this wouldn't have happened without this big um, push. 
Now, let's consider the wheelie suitcase. The wheelie suitcase is a very different type of invention. There was no R&D budget behind the wheelie suitcase. It was the combination of two really simple things that existed for quite a while, a caster wheel and a suitcase with a handle. And what mattered here was finding the right combination, the right synergy, the fact that if you combine these two inventions, out of all the billions of inventions that humans have come up with over the last few thousand years, that this will create something of unusual value. And I guess what the institutions behind this were, decentralized markets and competitions, and a really effective discovery process. So it's probably no accident that the people who were behind this invention were pilots and frequent flyers who really had some, some great insight into the demands of what it meant to be an air passenger in the jet age. So two both sort of somewhat important intervention, inventions, very different, but it shows you there's two different types of problems you might need to solve with your institutions. Um, the second interesting question is, um, how do you keep your institutions proper? How do you make sure that they're behaving in a fair and just way versus how do you keep them agile? Um, here on the left-hand side is a kind of classic Victorian problem of graft. And um, obviously one of the problems, if you set up institutions to solve political problems, there is a lot of temptation for politicians to mess around with them and to do that in a way to, 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 to further their own short-term political interests. So the classic example um, is UK interest rate policy in much of the late 20th century, where our central bank, the Bank of England, was controlled by the Treasury. And consequently, there was a repeated problem whereby the Treasury would juice the economy in the run up to an election in the hope that it would improve their political fortunes. Um, it was a problem that, to, to a great extent, was solved in 1997 when the Bank of England was made independent. But of course, there is then a challenge if you make institutions independent and you make them rule bound, which is that's fine when the circumstances for which you designed the rules persist. But from time to time, circumstances change. And one example when circumstances change is when your capital stock shifts, for example, from tangibles to intangibles. So Milgram and Roberts is a classic exposition of how you constrain your discretion, you tie Odysseus to the mast so that the sirens don't lure him off into the rocks. Um, but the problem is eventually, you know, if Odysseus stayed tied to the mast for the whole of the Odyssey, it would have been a very boring story because he actually needed to get off the boat when things changed, when there were no more sirens around. So there's a question about how do you balance that? How do you make institutions that have a lot, have the discretion at the right times, but not discretion at the wrong times? Um, and then the final question is, most institutions, especially if you're trying to deal with things like spillovers, create winners and losers. Um, a classic example that we talk about a lot in our books is planning policy, land use policy, um, where there are all sorts of clever innovations that people have come up with over the years um, to increase the supply of houses, for example, in places like the UK or dynamic US cities. Um, they make quite a lot of people unhappy. And one of the things that tends to be observed is NIMBYs always win. NIMBYs have concentrated interest, um, the general interest is dispersed, and people who have concentrated interest are often good at mobilizing those interests. Um, obviously, Eleanor Ostrom's work, which looked at fisheries in the first instance, is a nice picture of, a, of, a, of an old world fishery, um, looked at some ways that institutions could arise to try and police those boundaries. And one of the things that we then go and talk about in the book is how might you deploy some of these good institutions that will share the benefits so that 
losers don't have a strong incentive to block change when you need to change institutions to account for intangibles. So those are three changes. And I've, we talked, we've gone from theory to ideas. And now in the last checking the time, the last um, nine and a half minutes, we're going to talk about some specific examples of how that might apply. And these are generally, we'll talk about this from a UK audience, although most of these will apply in the US and in many other developed countries as well. So I'm going to talk a bit about public investment in things like R&D, an important category of intangibles. We are going to come back to this question of cities, which, as Jonathan said, seem to be really important in an economy of synergies and spillovers. We're going to talk a bit about what you might want to do with competition policy. If you remember, this intangible economy is one where leader firms seem to break away from laggard firms in a potentially quite alarming way. And then we're going to talk about the, what you need to finance businesses in this economy, this, particularly this economy where there's a lot of sunk costs, which financiers often don't like. Um, so if you're talking about funding science, technology and innovation, spillovers is the sort of brute fact you start with. If you if R&D is a really important bit of capital, you need to solve the spillover problem because firms will not invest as much as they should or as much as socially optimal in R&D without some kind of intervention. But if you think back to the wheelie suitcase, intangible capital, it seems to matter. The quality of intangible capital seems to matter a lot more. There's a higher potential for malinvestment. Um, and so if you can create institutions to ensure that, let's say, if you're investing in R&D, you get really good R&D, that matters quite a lot. And it means that we should probably be quite worried about institutions that increase the tendency towards malinvestment. Um, people like James Wilsden have written eloquently about the metric tide in research. And obviously, it's a big uh, concern in research funding. What if the incentives put on scholars to produce citations or to produce other quantified outcomes stand in the way of producing really important, really valuable R&D? And then finally, there's the question of another way that we try and limit these spillovers is the intellectual property system. Um, the intellectual property system feels like a great example of a system where losers, or potential losers, in this case rights holders, can do an awful lot that is not in the social interest but nevertheless protects their interests from spillovers, from new technologies, from the fact that something like, for example, Spotify uh, creates a lot of social welfare that potentially is problematic for rights holders. Um, normatively, what might we do? I think this creates a very strong argument for saying you should invest more public money in research. And, you know, I'm personally very excited by this aspect of UK public policy at the moment, but I think there's a lot of cross-party consensus and has been for the last few years on the need to invest more public money in R&D. Um, it increases the importance of experimenting with new ways of funding, whether those are really low bureaucracy models, people talk about funding lotteries, or things like the Howard Hughes Medical Institute model, where researchers get a lot of discretion once funding has been awarded, you can potentially think that the other option works very well, something like private um, versions of ARPA or ARIA that's just kicking off in the UK, where effectively you're giving project managers a huge amount of discretion and you're highly selecting to make sure you have the best project managers because you think that they can do really good investments in that area. It's kind of two extremes that look more interesting for tactical capital. And then finally, this question, well, what do you do about influence activities in the IP system? I think we would argue that this is a real instance where building state capacity really matters. 
Um, if we go back over a decade now, the Intellectual Property Office in the UK kicked off the Hargreaves Review, which was arguably a sort of very sophisticated attempt to try and parlay some of these differences of opinion between rights holders and the tech sector. Um, that required quite a lot of state capacity on the part of the Intellectual Property Office. Um, I think it was possible because that was sort of quite politically prioritised at the time for various reasons we can go into. Um, it's difficult to do and it's it's politically costly for the government to push back on rights holders. I've worked a lot with them and they are really, really good lobbyists. They're very, very well paid and charismatic lobbyists. So there's a kind of challenge. Um, we're talking about cities, a particular passion of mine, as Jonathan said, cities and clusters seem to be where the intangible economy happens very intensely. They seem more important now than perhaps they, they, they were 60 years ago. Um, but unfortunately, in the UK, we have a planning and zoning system that was largely designed in 1948, probably based on some kind of quite bucolic notions in the early 20th century about what good living and the, the, the countryside and the city ought to be like. Um, I think what's particularly damning about this is it doesn't just reduce intangible investment. So we think about this being bad for kind of cool metropolitan people. Um, I would argue the people who really suffer from this, you know, if you're a very highly educated person who grows up in a so-called left behind town and who gets an offer of a highly paid job at AstraZeneca in Cambridge, your high pay means you can afford to move to Cambridge and pay the ridiculous rents in supply constrained property market there. The people who really suffer are the people who have less marketable skills, who might be care workers or who might be tradespeople, who in a more mobile economy, a more economy with less supply constraint, could afford to move to Cambridge as well and work with the people who are, who are moving there in this kind of dynamic knowledge cluster and get some of that economic surplus that's being generated. So I've often thought that the so-called somewheres, anywheres divide that people like David Goodhart have written about is, I'm sure it is somewhat cultural, they, they would seem to argue that it's cultural, I would argue that perhaps some of it is just a kind of epiphenomenon of this economic change that, uh, that, 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 that we talked about. A um, couple of minutes left, um, we talk quite a lot in the book about competition, here's again the chart that Jonathan showed earlier about how the leader firms are pulling away from the laggard firms, and we think it's really important that this seems to be happening more in that solid line, the intangible intensive sector, than the, than, the, than the low intangible sectors. And for us, this is a bit of a smoking gun, that the problem is not, not, or at least not solely, the problem of regulators sort of taking their foot off the pedal. So there is a sort of the, the sometimes called neo-Brandesian critique of tech regulation says that, well, neoliberals in the US took over this system in the 1980s, and as a result, people went soft on monopolies, and as a result, monopolies have increased. So it's a sort of a, I would argue the Philippon critique says that this is first and foremost a problem of political action. I think we would say that that may be true, but there is also a problem here of, that is specifically relates to, to these new forms of capital. These new forms of capital are inherently um, seem to create these monopolies. But I think the really interesting question, if you want to remedy these, is, well, are these monopolies permanent and possibly too early to say conclusively? But it does seem, and the scalability of intangible seems to have something to do with this, that these monopolies grow quickly. But sometimes they collapse as well. Um, and um, the optimistic story here is that actually what we're seeing is an age of punctuated equilibria where you'll see tech platforms rise. But so long as you um, can 
regulate effectively, as long as you can ensure there's a space for new firms to scale up, that you'll have competition over a period of time because the giants basically um, fall prey to competitive to, to 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 new to new attacking firms over time. Um, and then finally, we talk about finance. And in the last minute, I'll quickly talk about this. Um, Stephen Cicchetti, a US economist, talked about this wonderful phrase, the curse of collateral. The curse of collateral is um, most financing in the economy is debt finance. Most businesses rely on bank lending or sometimes bonds to finance themselves. Um, that is a very sort of simple way of financing things. You don't need to know a lot about the business to make someone a bank loan. Um, but typically you do like to know they've got some assets and you like to have a charge over those assets if the business goes bust. Intangible assets, because as Jonathan said, are sunk, are less useful from that point of view. So an economy where more and more capital, more and more business capital is tangible, gets less and less appropriate for bank financing, which is kind of a problem given that banks are, A, the dominant institutional form of financial thing that we have going, but also given that they're heavily tax advantaged, given that debt interest is tax deductible and cost of equity is not tax deductible. Now, you might, the, 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 the obvious answer to this is, well, you need to find new ways of growing equity finance. VC is one way of doing that. That's a reason to serve a particular intangible um, sector, but it's very niche. Um, UK pension funds, I think there's an interesting critique here that they are very small, which makes it quite hard for them to invest intelligently. I'd say that as someone who, we, we have a £2 million asset under management pension fund at the Royal Statistical Society, which is very, very small. So I'm conscious I'm part of the problem here. Um, and so I think there's a really urgent and important question for financial regulators, and it's something that the Treasury is looking at here about, well, how do you push for more investment in intangibles? Um, that's been a whistle-stop tour. Um, there are lots of other things we talk about in the books, but I know we've got such a great audience today that I want to make sure we have plenty of time for questions. So I'm going to stop talking there. We'll stop sharing the screen and um, I think Nick will take us through some questions and we'll hopefully have a good discussion. Thank you, everyone. Great. Thank you very much indeed, um, Steve, and thank you, Jonathan. Um, let's go into some questions then. And I want to start with um, a question that was in my mind as you were speaking um, and which has been asked by my colleague Joe Crisp, which is the, the first part, at least, which is this. How, how does the intangible economy relate to the productivity puzzle? or more starkly perhaps for the UK, it's uh, productivity performance, um, which you know, many people would argue is historically unprecedented that uh, the period of productivity stagnation we've had since the financial crisis um, is historically unprecedented. Is there a relationship between the intangible economy and productivity that we see played out in particular ways in the UK? Um, I'll try that one. Thanks very much for the question. Um, Joe, uh, yes, we think there is a relationship. We talk about a little, a little bit in the book, um, and it goes like this. Uh, as we've mentioned, one of the properties of intangibles, remember those four S's, one of the properties is spillovers. So if I do some intangible investment in, let's say, design that benefits, uh, uh, spills over to steam, uh, he becomes more productive as a result. So a pound or a dollar or a euro in intangible investment gets a gets an extra bang for the buck as it were when it comes to the translation of productivity and what that means is when the economy is steaming ahead and investing a lot in intangibles it, it that that's a rising tide which lifts all boats 
when the economy uh, has, it, the investment is held back, then that pulls down uh, not only productivity, but it pulls down spillovers for productivity as well, which is measured in different ways. So we think, as we document in the book, that part of the explanation for slow productivity growth post-financial crisis is the slowdown that's been in intangible investment and therefore the lower spillovers uh, that that's thrown off. So it, it is tied up indeed uh, with understanding the productivity puzzle. Great, thank you, Jonathan. Um, uh, Joe has a sort of second part to his question, which is just, um, you mentioned at the beginning that GDP doesn't include uh, an, enough uh, measurement of the intangible uh, uh, economy or intangible capital. Uh, which which um, uh, additional measures would you include in the composition of GDP? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'd be a little bit ambitious uh, and go for the various, all the various measures that we've talked about um, but you can do it yourself. Uh, there is a new data set uh, called the EU CLEMS data set augmented with intangible investment, uh, and that's put out by myself, Carparado, uh, Cecilia Yonilicino, uh, Massimiliano That's all available to download. Uh, and that's uh, we have a new version out last Thursday. If you search for Intan Invest EU CLEMS, you can get all the European data by industry, by country, by year on the whole range of intangible assets and choose whether to include them or not. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. I, I highly recommend the, the CLEMS database and used it ourselves at Bath uh, for some of our work. Um, I want to I, I'm going to come on to a, a colleague indeed who has, has done that work, Ada Garcia Lazaro. Um, Ada's asking a question uh, about the link between skills gaps, and we talked a lot about R&D investment and, uh, 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 and capturing its benefits. Um, Ada's asking a question about uh, skills and skills gaps and the, the rise of the intangible economy. Basically, are our skills systems not keeping up with the supply of uh, labour for the intangible economy? So I think this is, this is a really good question. I think one way of looking at this is through this prism of synergies um, if one thinks of skills as the sort of generic undifferentiated pool of capital then all you really need to do is increase investment in them it's uh, it's a bit the more the better but i think if we think of skills through this prism of 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 of, of intangibles and that they are very synergistic with other types of intangible capital, then it matters not just how much you invest, but whether you get the right investment. And the thing that I'm particularly struck by, so Paul Lewis at King's did some really interesting work on technician skills in um, the personalised medicine sector, which I think was a really nice um, perspective on this. And what he was saying was that, well, if you want to train, for example, in this case, technicians to work in personalised medicine, not only do you need to provide enough investment so that Either, business, either businesses need to provide the investment or the government needs to subsidise the investment so that people go on the courses. But you need to actually solve quite a different, quite difficult question of what skills do they need? How do you build the right framework so that those skills are really useful and what, what the industry needs? And um, I think so his view was that skills capital, or at least technical skills capital, is really heterogeneous and it matters not just that you have enough from a quantity point of view, but that you've got the right stuff from a quality point of view. Um, to come back, I know Nick, to some of the things that I know are close to your heart on varieties of capitalism, I guess that's another reason why 
um, that skills question is perhaps easier to solve in a coordinated market economy than in a liberal market economy, because some of the institutions in the coordinated market economy help you match the, match the skills to the, to, 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 to the employer. Yeah, and I, I think that um, that that point um, responds at least in part to the, to the question that's just come in from Eleanor Claudius saying, you know, how do non-specialised workers benefit? Um, how do you avoid leaving more ordinary people behind? And I, this sort of comes to a, a question, Stian, you, you covered this in your in your final remarks about the 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 somewheres and nowheres, the left behind versus the knowledge economy specialists agglomerated in cities. Um, if you like, the challenge to institutions of developing inclusive forms of capitalism um, and that might be in part about competition policy and the other measures you've discussed uh, in the in the rest of your presentation but it might also be a question that that is addressed to the sort of political economy of institutions so let me just uh, phrase that slightly differently um, do we think that the intangible economy needs institutions that actively seek to balance interests within them to make sure that certain interests don't dominate or at least that um in in in, in their uh, in their operation and in inclusivity uh that they are um not captured by particular interests so coming to the point of um uh the superstar firms and the concentrations of market power uh, whether that then bleeds across into your political institutions such that particular actors, particular firms, billionaires and others become very dominant in your political economy and uh, others who um, you know, might work in left behind areas or not included in the knowledge economy, the intangible economy, find it hard then to find political expression, political representation. Does the intangible economy generate forms of political economy that its institutions need to find ways to solve, I suppose, is a, or democratic institutions that it needs to find ways to solve? So I think I mean the short answer is 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 yes. I think you know the, the uh, but I think the there's an interesting wrinkle there if we're saying well who is creating or who is well sorry let me take a step back. Some of this some of the institutional change that we see in tangible economy is arguably unhelpful from a sort of general social welfare. Um, and we talked a bit about two examples in the presentation. We talked about aggressively enforced intellectual property law, where it's really in the interest of a limited group of rights holders. Um, another one is very strong anti-urban development movements, where it's generally in the interest of existing property owners. And I think what's kind of interesting there, I mean, you know, that you can have a long debate on how problematic each of those things are. But if you accept that those, those might be problematic, the groups that are causing those problems are are not really the intangible economy winners for the most part. You know, the 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 people who are abusing or at least pushing hard on intellectual property rights are not Google. Google, if anything, are on the other side of 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 of, of the table here. They are the music industry, the sports industry, the people who originally own the rights. And I think in some ways that's why they fight so aggressively because they feel they're under threat, and in some ways they are under threat. Similarly, if you think about who are the drivers of um, anti-housing supply movements, I mean, if you want to, I know NIMBYs is a kind of charged word, but NIMBYism. Mm. Some NIMBYs are, you know, very rich tech people. If you go to Atherton outside San Francisco, there are some very rich tech people who are blocking development. But actually, your kind of classic, your classic NIMBYs are 
often retired people, people who bought houses before the run-up of property rates caused by low interest rates and decades of economic growth. Um, these are people who in some ways don't necessarily feel like winners in the new economy and may indeed feel quite culturally alienated from the new economy. So I think there's a really interesting wrinkle about how you design these. I think, so your, your basic point is right. You need institutions to, 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 to ensure kind of just outcome here. But it's quite interesting that it's not just a sort of straightforward battle between the poor and the powerful. It's actually, there are some quite interesting groups fighting this out who don't fit easily into either of those two paradigms. Thanks, yeah, I very much agree with that, Stian. That's um, uh, particularly when you look at the Brexit vote, it is not simply a left behind, excluded population and so on. I mean, there are plenty of other examples in the political science literature. We have a, a question um, also here about fiscal policy for the government. You talked a bit again about uh, investment in R&D, public investment in R&D, the, the consensus we have in the UK for increasing public investment in our R&D. Um, are there other uh, ways in which public funding should be orientated towards investment in the intangible economies, particularly for uh, perhaps addressing some of these uh, questions of social welfare that you raised there? Stian and um I'm going to come in on this uh but I'm going to pass over to Stian because um since I have the honor to work at the Bank of England I am contractually obliged not to have a view on fiscal policy <laughs> so I'm afraid I can't say anything Nick to that excellent question but I will pass over to my excellent co-author um so I think um very broadly speaking just as a sort of stylized fact in an economy where you've got more intangibles and therefore more capital has spillovers, that would suggest that there is more scope for public investments because you know the government can um, can 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 make or make investments that firms that will not be optimal for firms to make. So that's kind of one stylized fact. And you know if you take that to its logical conclusion, that's an argument for 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 a larger state. I think the interesting kind of uh, complication, though, is when we think about the wheelie suitcase. So the wheelie suitcase says, or the, the, the moral of the wheelie suitcase story is in this intangible economy, it will also really matter, matter more than it used to, that you don't get malinvestment. So if you believe that government funding channels sometimes fall into malinvestment traps, which certainly doesn't seem like a, 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 a totally unreasonable thing to believe, and people can believe different versions of that, but um, then, you, then, then, you, then you get a problem with, with, with a world of greater state investment. So I think the question is, how do you ensure that you get a sort of strong, potentially entrepreneurially informed system to decide where capital is going? which you know, could be interpreted in a very free market way of saying, well, actually, what you really want is to double down on entrepreneurship. If you believe that tax discourages entrepreneurs, you want very low taxes, very low regulation on those kind of things. And actually, all that matters is you have a few geniuses discovering the next equivalent of the wheelie suitcase. So I think, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, depending on your political priors, you can tell a story of much greater state spending or potentially one of much more entrepreneurial freedom. And, I, I find it hard to say anything rigorous about where you where, where to sit on that line. Which again, if I may, links back to the four S's. I think that's just why we find the four S's rather um, helpful. Uh, if it's the Apollo pro space program and it's spillovers, you what more investment means is more state centralized investment. 
if it's uh, the wheelie suitcase and its synergies, what a policy of more investment means is more competition, actually, in order to read those uh, synergies. And I think that's the, that's the tension, as I say, uh, mm -hmm. on the basis of the various essays we described. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think in the in the I mean, going back to your point about NIMBYs and, you know, who is it that opposes uh, uh, extra housing development and so on? There's also an argument that within public spending debates, you know, there are, there are groups of the population, older people, for example, that might prioritise consumption spending, increase pensions, increase uh, resources that go towards uh, consumption, and those that might argue for more investment, science, education, R&D, and perhaps intangible uh, investment might be a, a preference of those latter groups, rather than perhaps uh, groups favouring things like a, a higher state pension reform. So, so I think that's a really interesting issue you raise. Um, there's some research that I think has just come out today by the Campaign for Science and Engineering, looking at the different demographics' opinions of, certainly they looked at R&D spending. And one of the things that was totally counterintuitive to me, it sounds like it might be counterintuitive to you as well, based on what you said, is actually they found older groups are more interested in R&D spending, which is a finding I've never seen before. Mm. But it makes me think of some some polling that we did at Nesta about a decade ago, which did find that there was a really interesting subgroup of mostly older, mostly relatively less educated members of the public in the UK who were really bought into a vision of tangible investment or R&D investment. If you could frame it in a slightly, what's the best way of putting it, almost nationalistic, kind of patriotic mm. A patriotic way and I remember when I was working with Sanjima in uh, in Bayes on the in the days when we were sort of increasing R&D investments we found there was a very particular demographic who were often older Daily Telegraph was very inter interested in this space who really loved space research who really loved UK space research and who tied that into a kind of very post-Brexit narrative of British technology. Now, clearly, there are lots of that. Some people find that quite a problematic narrative, and it's quite different from other narratives of science that you can tell. But it's um, it kind of comes back to this question of if you do think there is a you know age, there are there are important generational gaps in politics. Can you frame an agenda of intangible investment so that it appeals across the demographic mm. divide? It's a, it's a really important issue that you raise. Yeah, I, I, I'll add another thought. As we talked about a little bit in the presentation, we say this in the book, one of the interesting manifestations of an intangible economy is the rise in value of tangible assets, by which we mean houses in cities, because the cities become more important via the intangible. Uh, that's the advantage to owners of tangible assets. So I think that explains a lot of what older people are interested in. I suppose the other thing I would just add to this thought is that work by Jan Eberly in the US indicates that the R&D um, efforts of pharmaceutical companies are disproportionately orientated at drugs which keep older people alive for uh, a little bit longer. Now, you know, obviously, we all want our parents and our nearest and nearest to stay alive, but that is somewhat at the cost of drugs which you'd think would be um, important for younger people, ADHD, drugs for, which might help prisoners, for example, many of whom uh, have got a lot of challenges uh, there. So I think there's another aspect to the kind of political economy of all of that um, and the way that the intangible uh, economy builds various different, different constituencies.
that's a that's a fascinating there's a whole research agenda in what you've just said there um that's a really interesting set of questions uh we've got a few more minutes and i'm going to ab 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 abuse my position as chair just to ask you a question about the geopolitics of the intangible economy and um to ask in particular whether you see the development of uh, uh, an intangible economy which is essentially uh us uh us perhaps plus europe a western intangible economy and in the future increasingly a chinese intangible economy um uh, uh in, in which there is you know much more on un, un, uncoupling or attempts as it were to constrain the spillovers from your investments to your geopolitical sphere uh and uh in 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 both sides and so i i ask that principally because you know china has developed a huge as you show, showed in your figures a huge tech sector uh but it's done so within very very protective um barriers um uh to the point actually where it's become kind of politically problematic and there's a, you know a confrontation obviously between chinese leadership and the tech sector in recent years um and at the same time the us seeking to uncouple investments and supply chains at least up to a point uh, uh, to bring them to re-onshore them, et cetera, that kind of debate. And so my question is, you know, is there a sort of looming future where the intangible economy is at the kind of heart of uh, geopolitical division and conflict? And we see this kind of bifurcation developing uh, even further. I guess the classic economics answer is we want more trade and we want more geopolitical, uh, uh, you, you know, liberalization and, and the reason for that, again, if I may say, goes back to the various S's. If someone in China has invented a better wheelie suitcase or a cure for cancer or something, uh, we want that knowledge to spill over. And, uh, you know, we're going to be able to use it in the same way that the other companies could use, could use the iPhone. Where I think this gets much more problematic uh, is that, of course, lots of our key infrastructure, which we generally view as being strategically important, power, telecoms, and that kind of thing, increasingly has become intangible rather than tangible. Um, you know, lots of, uh, uh, well, telecoms networks obviously uh, are run by enormous amounts of software, likewise power networks as well. Uh, and so that's where I think um, uh, uh, the, the sort of classic economists, let's have more trade uh, uh, argument uh, meets, uh, meets a bit of a match. So that's a kind of narrow economics answer, one thought. And I suppose, I mean, there's an interest, if we're talking about geopolitics, the, I keep thinking about this in the context of the Taiwanese semiconductor cluster and TSMC and so forth. And um, one of the memes that comes up time and time again when people talk about China, Taiwan is the idea of if, if there's full, full reunification of China sort of taking over the semiconductor industry. And it's very interesting in some ways that, you know, the semiconductor industry or the semiconductor cluster in Taiwan is arguably primarily a collection of intangible assets, not tangible ones. I mean, there obviously are some valuable tangible assets. There are these, these, these fabs, which are extremely expensive bits of kit. But in a sense, you know, the fabs are very easy to reconstruct. If China wanted to build some fabs, but indeed they have done, you know, they could, they could, they could replicate that relatively easily. What you can't replicate is the incredibly deep pools of human capital in companies like TSMC, the relation, the supply chain relationships with the various other bits of the semiconductor supply chain, which all of which rely on basically being continually updated. And um, it feels that that's partic a particularly interesting. This is not like, say, uh, 
conquering a country so you can take its oil wells or its natural reserves, which in some ways is a sort of relatively trivial thing to do. This is actually kind of much more, much more complicated, but um, my, it, it comes back to these synergies that we talked Great. Well, th thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Stian, uh, for a fantastic event and for taking the time today to present your new book to us and to answer those questions so comprehensively and uh, uh, with such interest. And thank you all for joining us today at the event too. Please do um, keep in touch with uh, the events and the work and the research of the IPR. Uh, as I said earlier, the audio and video recordings of today's event will be made public. So if you want to watch and listen, catch up again, return to some of the questions we've discussed, you'll be able to do so shortly. Just visit the IPR website in the in the coming days and weeks. So thank you once again, Jonathan, Stian, thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.